chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Let me go ahead and read this for us. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we are in the final uh, week of our series in the Gospel of Mark. We've spent a good year uh, covering the entire Gospel of Mark, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we're going to dive into a new series starting uh, next week. But Mark's ending here is interesting because it, it leaves us with more of, less of a conclusion, more of a calling. Okay? Less of a conclusion, more of a calling. And that's something that Mark does a lot throughout his gospel. He leaves the readers a lot of times at the end of the, the narrative, an abrupt ending that caused people into action, caused people to respond, more so than this very well-knit uh, resolution. And this passage does the same, and how, uh, in three ways. I have this outline for you in the bulletin. Three ways this causes us to respond. One, it causes us to respond rationally, and that's appealing to our minds. Second, it, it, it causes us to respond humbly, appealing to our hearts. And thirdly, it causes us missionally, causes us to respond missionally, appealing to our hands and feet. Okay, so these three will be our uh, points for today. So point number one, this account calls us to respond rationally. Now, I mentioned to you last week, uh, with the story of the burial and with the women at the burial, the fact that the primary eyewitnesses to the resurrection, to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ were women, adds to, adds to the credibility of the gospel. Because why? Women had very low status during this time. Their testimonies were not even admissible in court. And so if... If these Jewish disciples were fabricating this account, they just completely made this up out of thin air, they would not have established these women as primary witnesses and paint themselves as cowards who are in hiding. There's absolutely no practical benefit to writing it this way if they were making this up. So why is it written this way? And the most probable and the rational explanation is because that's how it happened. That's the only rational historical explanation there is. They're writing it as it happened. Now, some people would object, can object, and have objected, and, and say something like, well, they just saw what they wanted to see. They were in mourning, they were grieving, they were desperate, and they hallucinated. They had a delusion, a delusional experience. They wanted to see an empty tomb. They desperately wanted to see the risen Christ, so much so they, that they deluded themselves into actually seeing it. Okay, that argument, although it's very common, uh, fails for two reasons. One, you don't have group hallucinations. Okay, that's something that psychologists, psychiatrists today would test, 
uh, testifying to. You don't have group hallucinations. Hallucinations are subjective individual experiences, okay? not an objective communal experience. Second reason is this. Everything, everything in our passage today indicates that the women visiting Jesus' tomb were not at all expecting a resurrection. Okay, the, the number one evidence of that is in verse 1. Two words. Bought spices. Okay. Um, the sole purpose of these women visiting Jesus' tomb was to adorn Jesus' corpse, his dead body, with spices. That was a Jewish custom of offsetting the odors um, of a body that's decomposing. They weren't expecting an empty tomb. They weren't expecting a risen Christ at all. And this also why, it explains why they were so alarmed and they were so astonished, so shocked when they see an angel instead and the body's gone. Okay. And when the angel tells them, he has risen, he is not here, none of them said, I knew it. None of them goes, see, I told you. Right? They're in disbelief. They remain in shock. They tremble and they flee. Right? The truth is they weren't expecting the resurrection at all. And this is something that um, historians actually consider, whether a group of people living in a certain time uh, find something expected or not, or reasonable or not, within their worldview during that time. And in this case, when it comes to an individual physical resurrection, like the one that Jesus here experiences, where he walks out of his own tomb, that was not at all a part of the Judaism sort of worldview. Okay? Their system of belief. Okay? They believe in the end there's, there'll be this massive, massive sort of raising of the dead, but not this individual self-resurrection and walking out of the tomb. That's not part of the worldview. And this is why even though Jesus has said repeatedly, remember, time and time again, I will be killed and I will rise again on the third day. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again on the third day. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again on the third day. None of the disciples, right, and none of the women were applying that statement to this situation right now. Right? Isn't that odd? Right? None of them are here going, hey, remember what Jesus said about dying and rising again on the third day? And isn't this the third day? Maybe we should go check. No, none of them. Right? So they took it allegorically, they took it symbolically, they took it perhaps metaphorically, none of them took it literally. It's not a part of their system of belief. Okay. That's how countercultural this was for them. And so to say that they expected to see it and wanted to see it, and that's how they ended up seeing it, it makes no sense. Now, um, Tim Keller draws a very important application point from this. And it's worth reiterating. He says, quote, The resurrection Jesus, of Jesus was impossible in their worldview. Yet they believed. How? They let the evidence challenge their worldview. They had the intellectual integrity to let the evidence challenge their worldview. Do you have it? Do you have the intellectual integrity to challenge world, the, your worldview by the evidence? Will you let the evidence speak for yourself and let it challenge you? Because if you do, when, and when you do, that changes everything, like it changed everything for these women and the disciples. The renewing of your mind begins to happen. But the early church history tells us the disciples all spent the rest of their lives proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the point of dying terrible, terrible deaths. These disciples were in hiding who denied Jesus, betrayed Jesus, ran from Jesus in his neediest hour, 
suddenly, somehow, are transformed into his bravest proclaimers of his resurrection to the point of dying, of being crucified and executed. And the question is, the question is, could a hoax really have transformed them that way? Do you know anyone who would die for something they know, they know is a lie, they know is fabricated? Okay, we can understand somebody dying for something they, they think is true when it is a lie, and that's a delusion, right? But it's hard to think of anyone who would die for something they know is a lie, that they themselves made up. So what's left in terms of the explanation of their transformation? They were utterly transformed by what they actually saw. And that also explains how Saul, the persecutor of the early church, saw the persecutor become Saul the missionary. They were changed completely by what they saw with their own eyes. Now, if you're here and you're sitting here thinking, I, can, I still can never accept the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? If that's you, first of all, so glad you're here. Uh, this, I mean, our doors, want to, we want to be wide open for you. Right? We, we, we want to be welcome, more welcoming of you in a way than we're welcoming of Christians because Christians should be serving you rather than being served. Happy you're here. But here's the challenge for you. If this is you, this is a challenge for you. You have to come to grips with this rationally. You have to be intellectually honest enough to have a rational alternative explanation for all the historical data here. And somehow explain it just as coherently or even more coherently than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have to respond to this rationally somehow. Respond to the evidence. And so do Christians, right? We, we operate by the same rules of logic. We all have to respond rationally to this. And it's insufficient to simply say, I do not care. Okay? Because if this man walked out of his own grave, he just might be the great I am. He is the great I am. And you owe him everything. He created everything and you own everything. So you cannot say, I simply do not care and this has no relevance to me. It's up to us to respond to this rationally. Okay, second point. This account also calls us to respond humbly. Okay, look at verse 7. Take a look at verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Okay, now... I. This point was made when we talked about the denial of the trial of Peter. So notice the name resurfacing again. Peter is here again. The one who denied Jesus three times in Jesus' neediest, loneliest, most painful hour. Here's mentioned, Peter is mentioned here again. Jesus is calling out to him and the rest of the disciples who betrayed him and ran away from him. And he's continuing to reveal himself to them. What does that mean? Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This means before they repented, before they ran to Jesus weeping, falling on his knees, before any of that, before they even knew of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus already forgave them. Jesus already pardoned them and already invited them back into his fellowship. He's still calling them, and even Peter as his disciple. When the angel says, just as he told you, what does that mean? Just as he told you while you were walking with him, while he was discipling you. Meaning Jesus is still, he's still discipling them. 
He's still revealing himself to them, speaking to them, sending his message to them, sending them where he wants them to go. This means more than anything, they were already, already forgiven. And that's what's so amazing about the grace of Jesus Christ. He's forgiven his disciples and even Peter before they repented. Before they put their faith in him. Before they fixed themselves somehow, spiritually. In other words, Jesus is forgiving them not because they repented, but so that they can repent. Jesus forgave them not because they repented, but he forgave them so they would repent. It's his kindness that's leading them to repentance. It's not repentance leading to his kindness. It's his kindness that's leading them to repentance. Grace comes first. Okay. That's Jesus' way of operating. He, he gives his grace first. And this is why I, I tend to reiterate this point in our, in our baptism courses. And for those of you who've taken it, you, you've heard me say this. It's not... It's not your baptism that leads to God's grace. It's not your profession of faith that yields the fruit of grace. It is God's grace that came to you first that leads you to profess your faith and come to the point of being baptized. It's God's statement of grace first. Okay? Baptism is first and foremost God's statement of grace and only secondarily your statement of faith in response. Just like the curtain in the temple, right, that was torn in two forever by God himself, top down, right? Grace, salvation, is a top down movement. It's not a bottom up thing we achieve, right, with, with our faith or with our prayer. Grace comes first and it yields our faith. It produces faith in us. That's why in Psalm 3, chapter 3, verse 8 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't say salvation belongs to those who profess faith. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Nothing is more humbling than this. Right? Even my faith, even my hands that reach out for God is a top-down movement. It's an act of God's grace. It's a gift from God, not my work. For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Grace is the gift, and faith is just the, the empty hands and, and the means by which you receive this. And everyone who's ever received the gift knows this, or, or you've given a gift, you know this. When, when, when I give a gift to my kids, it's the, the, the gift that draws out their hands to receive it, right? I show them the gift, then the hands come to receive it, right? God's gift of His salvation draws out our faith. It creates faith in us. Grace comes before faith. Grace comes before faith. And in this sense, you can, in a sense, rightly say God's grace is unconditional. You hear that a lot. God's love is unconditional. God's grace is unconditional. But I like how uh, David Paulison put it. He says, God's grace is even better than unconditional. It's better than unconditional. He says, God's grace is contra-conditional. Meaning, it's contrary to the conditions for receiving God's grace and His love. See, for the disciples, not only did they not meet the conditions for God's love, they contradicted it. Right? 
They actually deserve the opposite of God's love. And so God being forgiving and loving towards them is not just unconditional, it's contra-conditional. It didn't come to a people who, who are sinless, but who people who are sinful. It doesn't, it doesn't come to this sort of neutral people, group of people, right, who are just doing well on their own. It came to sinners. That's why it's contra, contra conditional. So Paulison says, quote, you need and I need something better than unconditional love. You need the crown of thorns. You need his touch of life. You need the promise to the repentant thief that even you can be with me in paradise even though you've only lived a life of sin. Do you get this? this? That salvation doesn't come to those who deserve it more than others, but to those who deserve it least. But Jesus doesn't say, tell my disciples that they will see me, and tell Peter, that jerk, <laughs> he'll see me last. If he begs for mercy, then I'll see him. No, he'll see me just the same, like the rest. Though his sins were greater, he'll see me just the same. Meaning what? They are all, we are all, every single one of us, saved by grace alone. Alone. And so this grace comes to, not even Peter, but especially Peter, especially the undeserving. In fact, you know, consider this. Who becomes the greatest leader in the early church? It's Peter, right? How did that, how did that happen? It's because Peter's failing more than all the rest made him a greater witness to God's grace than all the rest, right? He is the one most appreciative of God's grace and the one boldest in proclaiming God's grace. You see how grace works? It works if you're humble. It works if you're poor. It works if you think of yourself as the least of these. The more you see yourself as a sinner, the more it lifts you up. The more grace lifts you up. And so if we were to apply this to ourselves, this means for one, you should never, ever discount yourself from Christian discipleship because of your sins. Because the message of grace is reaching out to you. Not just even you, but especially you. Especially you. And when it does grab hold of you, it will change you the way you change Peter. It will turn your worst failure, your worst shame, into your greatest testimony. Your worst failure, your worst shame, into your greatest testimony of God's grace. This is how grace humbles you. It doesn't make you think less of yourself, because God's love for you and grace for you is so great, but it will make you think of yourself less often. Because you no longer need to perform to justify yourself. It's not, it's not up to you. It's up to God. Salvation belongs to Him, His grace. And His grace came to you before you did anything, before you decided anything, before you put your faith in Him. It came to you first, and He drew you in. Irresistibly drew you in. And so you can totally rest in His grace from start to finish. He who began this good work in you will bring it to completion. Philippians 1.6 it's all, it's all by His grace. So please don't rule yourself out. If, if this is you, please don't rule yourself out. Grace can, grace can reach you. Grace can 
change you, and grace will never lose its grip on you. Especially those of you who feel like it might lose its grip on you. That's why humility, humility in the Christian faith is such a gift, right? Because it, it makes you lean more on God's grace, not less. This account causes us to respond humbly. And lastly, this account causes us to respond missionally. Now, before we get, to, get into this point, a quick note about the ending of Mark. You notice how we, we're ending at verse 8 and we're not covering the rest of the Gospel of Mark. And in your Bible, it will show you a little notation that says the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 and the rest. So, uh, there's a minor debate about this, okay? About the, the, whether the ending to Mark is in verse 8 or is it, is it uh, verse 20 or something like that. So let me make a brief comment about that before I go into the last point. The, the earliest manuscript, and when they say earliest manuscript, that means the most reliable manuscripts. Uh, the, the, the ones most likely written by Mark himself did not include uh, verse 9 and on. It ends at verse 8. It ends at verse 8, okay? Um, so most likely not, the, the, the later section was not originally written by Mark, and that's something that most scholars, historians agree on. What's slightly debated is whether there's a stylistic difference between everything until verse 8 and everything thereafter. Okay? And I side with the majority of commentators on this, that the content in the last section from verse 9 and on seemed to be content taken from the other Gospels, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. Um, when you look at the details and you, you look at the vocabulary that's used, and so it seems more reasonable to posit the last section was written by a scribe added to the Gospel of Mark later on, um, perhaps because he, the, the scribe didn't find the ending appropriate. It find, he found the ending too abrupt. Okay. But since it's Mark's record of Peter's testimony uh, that gives this, uh, this Gospel the canonical, canonical status, meaning the right to be included as a book of the Bible, um, we won't be covering the scribal edition that's at the end, okay? But, okay, no need to worry, okay, we're not like, we're not like cutting out a chunk of God's word, okay? This is on the basis that we believe Mark has written up to verse 8, and, and, rest assured, the rest of the content will be covered in the other Gospels, right? When we get to Matthew, when we get to Luke, when we get to John, those same, same content will be found in those Gospels, and because they're so similar, almost look like a copy and paste job. So, there's that. Right, if you have more questions about that, you can, you can come up to me later on or come up to Pastor Kevin and ask us about that later on. So then, with that, how do we understand the ending in verse 8? The abrupt ending in verse 8. And how does it call us to respond missionally? Okay, here's the verse again. Verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment has seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. Right? Pretty abrupt, right? Um, but you know what? This is actually this is actually a great ending, it, and it's one that's very unique to Mark. Okay. First, the question the readers are led to raise from this is: This will the women go? Right? It forces that question on you. Will the women actually go? Will they be sent and tell all the others this incredible news about grace, about the resurrection? Okay. What will they do with it? Now they have this incredible piece of news. What will they do? 
Um, Tolstoy asked once, is there any meaning in life that the inevitable death awaiting us does not destroy? Okay. Is there any meaning in life that the inevitable death that awaits us does not destroy? In the resurrection, they have an answer to that. Okay. Believing this resurrection, proclaiming that, that gives life meaning that death can't destroy because this resurrection is undoing death. It's the undoing of death. And the women here are the first people on earth to have the, have the clearest answer to this. What would they do with this? That's the first missional question. The second missional question is this. Will they go and tell them of this news despite, despite their fear of rejection? It says here that they were afraid and they were speechless. Why? Think about it. They're the least credible people in their society. And they're about to tell people the most incredible news. <laughs> okay. As the most... Right? People with the least amount of credibility, they're about to tell people the most incredible news. That's terrifying. They're the lowest class during this time. They had no education. Will they brace the rejection of, of patriarchy, of discrimination, of, of being looked down upon and tell the disciples, the, the male disciples, the message that's been given to them? Will they surrender their fear of man? Be utterly humble and self-forgetful and proclaim this good news. And we know from the other accounts, and we know from history, they went. They went and they proclaimed this good news. And it's partly why we have the gospel today. It's partly why Christianity exists today, because we have the good news of the resurrection. Because these women went and told the disciples. They counted the cost, right? They, they fully registered the fear. And then they obeyed. Why? Because if... See, if the resurrection is true, what can man do to... If the resurrection is true, what is there to be afraid of? And Calvin once said this, Our hope extends into the future even beyond death, and nothing is more contrary to its nature than to be doubting what will happen to us. If you embrace the resurrection, okay, both in your mind and in your heart, there will be no room left for fear for your future. Anxiety about what will happen. Do you see the relevance this has on your life? Right? And the missional question is now, you, you are now forced to ask via Mark's abrupt ending. First, if you've received this message of grace, will you go? Will you go and share this? Will you brace the occasional rejection you'll face? The hate you'll get? When this leaves you speechless and afraid, when you consider the, the, the cost of this, cost of losing friends, being isolated by family members, being frowned upon at the, at, in your workplace, in your classroom, will you still obey? Not doubting what will happen, not afraid what will happen to you, will you still go? See. You and I, right, live in a culture uh, where the greatest idol is people's approval. It's where we are told we have to very meticulously brand ourselves to the world. And, and, and they tell you you have full control over how you message yourself to the world, how you present yourself to the world. But the missional question for you is this, is it enough that you're branded with Christ? 
Is that sufficient of a message for you that you are one with Christ and you'll be resurrected with Him in the afterlife? Is that enough branding for you? Is that enough of a message for you to stand on? Will you surrender, therefore, your fear of man and your desire to please and, and, and to be approved by everyone? There's only one way you'll say yes to this. There's only one way you'll surrender this. And that's if you're so satisfied in being branded with Christ and His resurrection. It's to the degree that you're renewed in your mind by the resurrection of Christ and humbled in your heart by the grace of Christ. That's the degree to which you will carry this message in your hands and in your feet and go. It's if you see yourself as the carrier of this meaning in life that the inevitable death that awaits all of us cannot destroy. And it's if you truly celebrate this resurrection of Christ that's defeated death, and not only his death, but your death as well. So here you are, and here I am, right? Right where uh, the women were. Um, with the same evidence, with the same message, even on the same day of the week, right? It says here it was the first day of the week when the sun had risen, which means Sunday morning. Here you are, here I am, at the same time, same time of the week, with the same message. And the questions are, what will you do, and how will you respond? That's the ending. What will you do, how will you respond? Will you go? Will you go to your friends? Will you go to your family members? Will you go to your classmates? Will you go to your coworkers? Will you go to your neighbors? and tell them the good news. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel. We thank you for bringing us to this calling in the conclusion that asks us, asks us to be your witnesses. Help us to remember just, just whom you have called. People who have failed you. People who have run from you. People who have denied you and sinned against you. Lord, you are calling such people, and we know, therefore, you can be calling us. You are calling us. Help us to be renewed in our understanding of your grace. Be humbled by your grace. Be transformed by your grace so that we would, we would heed this calling. And we would take this gospel in our hands and feet and go. And go and seek and save the lost and follow after your Son. Give us strength to do this. And strengthen our church so we may do this. Let us be a wide open temple for those who need to encounter you in your, in your presence. See you for who you are in your holy of holies. And, and encounter you at the cross where you have torn the curtain in two. And you have flung the gates wide open for all of us to come and see and behold just how amazing your grace is for us. So, Lord, fill our hearts with this praise and this thanksgiving, this response that you alone are worthy of all of our worship, all of our attention, all of our praise, all of our lives, all of our breaths. Lord, you alone are worthy. So help us live for you and proclaim you for the rest of our days. We pray in Jesus' name.